pray for us, Gilda? Father, do thank you once again for this day. Thank you for bringing us together, Lord God. I thank you for your word, your truth, your love, your mercy, and your grace. I pray that we would be attentive to what your Holy Spirit is saying to us, Lord God, and that we would have ears that hear and that we would apply your word, Lord, so that knowledge could become wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Alright, so before we get into worship, I wanted to read this devotion to you. It's called Living to Please. First <clears throat> Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 is the scripture. We instructed you how to live in order to please God. We know we aren't saved by our ability to please God. We understand that God is satisfied by our faith, not our works. But Paul, the great apostle of grace, through faith, also spoke a lot about obedience. In 1 Thessalonians, he actually spoke of ways to please God through behavior. We want to please God, of course, and we know our obedience falls short. Coming to God on the basis of works makes for a frustrating relationship. It's never perfect. Even so, God is intensely concerned with what we do, and how we live has everything to do with what we offer him. It's not about earning his favor, but about giving him our best. Our worship is shaped not only by what we feel or what we say, but by how we behave. Our works can honor God. And that's important to know in a culture that doesn't give much attention to obedience. Rules in our day are considered relative always subject to interpretation. Even in the church, we emphasize faith more than obedience, and we're right to do so. But nowhere does the Bible tell us that our obedience becomes irrelevant. James is empathetic that faith without works is dead. Not even faith at all. That makes a lot of sense. If we believe that Jesus is Lord and then fail to act as if he is, we have made a significant statement. We have demonstrated that our words don't mean very much. In obedience, I'm sorry, is obedience a part of your worship? Do your beliefs have implication for your behavior? More pointedly, when your desires and your Lord contradict each other, which do you obey? Your behavior is the final word on what you really believe. No matter how strongly you feel a love for God, and no matter how deeply held you think your faith is, if it doesn't result in action, it's an illusion. Jesus said the same thing. If you love me, you will obey what I command. John 14 verse 15. In other words, if you love him, you will also love his words and his words will guide your life and that is immensely pleasing to god let us go into worship
is that worship is about you. Worship is about giving you all of our attention, all of our affection, setting our hearts and our minds on you, Lord. Pray even as we sing this next song that you would revive us, that you would revive us as a church, Lord. That even though we've sung this song a million times, it would be new to us today. That you would revive us, God. Hear our prayer, Lord.
church again, Father, that you would awaken us, God, that we would truly have an understanding of the urgency of the hour in which we are living, God, that we would no longer seek to do our will, seek to have our program, seek to make us known, but Father, that we truly, Father, would seek to please you and to make you known. Thank you, Father. Your word promises us that you would never leave us nor forsake us. Forgive us, Father, where we have gone astray. We thank you, God, that you are a God that revives, that restores, that mends broken hearts, that delivers, God, those that are oppressed, to open the blind eyes and the deaf ears. We thank you, Father that you are the God of salvation, that you gave your one and only Son, that he who would believe in you and in him would have eternal life. So, Father, I thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, but it's living by God's power. It can't be just a lot of talk. But we must be living by his power. So I've been praying and thinking through this upcoming day and the scriptures that we're going to read. I'm reminded of how great his love is for us. And how we're not called just to hold a form of religion, to to follow rules and laws, but that we're actually engrafted into his kingdom, that we are, our position is in Christ, that we are already in a place of victory, that we already have the fullness of all that he has for us, for us to walk in and to live in, to experience and to share with others, to encourage others, not just by our words, but also through our actions that our lives should match our words. And when I think and I see what's happening all around the world, and as you all are hearing reports and you're seeing what's going on in our nation, and we really grasp the understanding that Christian, the Christian faith they're trying to remake. And if you haven't listened to um, the briefing that Albert, I think Al, Albert Moeller, um, I think that's his name, has. I'm going to post it. Um, it's from Friday. But um, he talks about the agenda to, to remake the Christian faith and what we're seeing in our nation. And not just in our nation, but all around the world. People want to water down the gospel. People want to cheapen God's grace and, and his blood 
And what we've got to be able to do is be able to stand and not allow what the enemy is intending to, to come to pass. That we stand for truth, that we don't cave in, but that we actually stand for, for truth and to uphold God's truth. Because we know that in the last days that many will leave the faith and follow doctrines of demons. And I don't know if we, when we read that scripture, if we really grasp the, the, the understanding of it, but that people will follow the doctrines of demons, that they will turn from faith in Christ, all that he is, all that he's done, they will turn and begin to follow doctrines, teachings of demons. And or are we not living in those days where people are seeking to again to revamp the Christian faith to make it about them, their desires, their wants, their needs, and less of Christ. And how sad when the Bible tells us and in our verse that we've talked through this year that the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, but it's living by the power of God and through the power of God. Today we're going to go to Numbers chapter chapter 4, and we're also going to read chapter 5. And again, the whole reason why we are walking through the Bible is hopefully to get a, a, a good view and a good understanding of who our God is. That He is God and God alone. That from the beginning... His plan and His purpose is to have a people that He will call His own and they, that they will call Him their God. That they would live for Him. That they would honor Him. That they would follow Him. God Himself, from the beginning, this is His desire. And He will accomplish what He has purposed. In the end, He will come and collect those who are His people. And that's the hope that Christians have is that eternity with God, that God, what he has purposed, what he has planned, will come to pass. And as I've encouraged you as we've opened up the book of Numbers, that we will see God's faithfulness throughout this book, but we will also see mankind's unfaithfulness. They love him for a moment. They love him for a season. They're all in it for a season, but soon the season fades and they turn right back to the ways of the world. They turn right back to worship idols that man have created. And they've lost their love for their creator. And oh God have mercy. We have seen it. And if you're reading through scripture, you've seen it all through generation to generation, even in our own generation and generation to come, that men and women turn and begin to worship worthless things. That they turn from their creator to the created. And how sad. Because God loves us so much. And his desire is for us to be with him. I love it when Jesus says, you are to abide in me. You are to remain in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you abiding in Christ daily? Are you walking with him daily? Are you seeking him daily? Moment by moment. More of him and less of us. That we seek to see his kingdom advance. 
not our purpose, not our will, but his kingdom. I mean, they are attacking churches and Christians all throughout the world. And even within our own nation, we're beginning to see the pushback on God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians. Are we ready for the days that are to come? Not that we need to be afraid or it's doom and gloom. No, that should actually excite us for what we're seeing and what we're hearing. It should excite us to understand that God's plan we are seeing played out. And so we're not to draw back in fear. No, that should encourage us to fan the flame within to represent him in a day and age where it's getting darker. Remember, I keep encouraging us that as it's getting darker, you should be growing brighter. Stir up the gifts that are within you. It's important as we're going through Scripture today, we're going to see in Numbers 4 and 5 that God specifically gave instructions to each of these different clans on how they were to serve Him in the temple. And as we're reading through this, sometimes in the book of Numbers, you can read through it and kind of get lost in it. But don't get lost in, 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 your, in your lack of understanding. Get lost in who God is in the sense of just get overwhelmed in a good way of how great God is. How he is so detailed. How he calls men into service. How he utilizes his creation to accomplish his will. And as I was reading through Numbers 4 and 5, it reminded me of how the Holy Spirit distributes his gifts among the church and everyone is gifted and everyone ought to be using their gift to accomplish God's purpose. Are you using the gifts in which you've been given? Are you serving diligently? Are you honoring him in, in how you're serving him and how you're serving others? It's a beautiful picture. And these men are warned. They need to do it the right way. And as you're reading today, if you haven't already read, you're going to see that if they don't, they could die. I mean, God does not play around with his holiness, with who he is, with his presence. And nor shall we. We should honor him. We understand that we come and we serve him and we maintain that reverent fear of God. That he is holy, holy, holy. He's not to be aloof. He's not just to be this casual acquaintance that we have. No, he's God. He's God and he's holy. And he's instructing them on how they're to live. Remember, other nations are seeing Israel be informed, if you would. They're, they're looking from the outside in and seeing how God is instructing these people that he has set apart for himself and the way they worship and the way they live. I mean, we're even going to read today where they put the sick outside the camp. And it's not meant for... You know, to shun them in a sense, 
but it's meant to keep the camp healthy. And it just goes to show you how sickness can creep in and destroy that which is healthy. Sin is destructive. When all the other nations are just allowing things just to go about, God is ordering His his people and showing them how to live, to maintain health, status with Him, honoring Him, living for Him. They're, They're to be different than the rest of the nations who created their own gods, who lived at their pleasure, doing what they wanted. But God has a plan and has a purpose. And through it all, especially through the Old Testament, it's pointing to Jesus. Chapter 4. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Record the name of the members of the clans and families of the Korahite division of the tribe of Levi. List all the men between the ages of 30 and 50 who are eligible to serve in the tabernacle. The duties of the Korahites at the tabernacle will relate to the most sacred objects. When the camp moves, Aaron and his sons must enter the tabernacle first to take down the inner curtain and cover the Ark of the Covenant with it. Then they must cover the inner curtain and with fine goatskin leather and spread over that a single piece of blue cloth. Finally, they must put the carrying poles of the ark in place. Next, they must spread a blue cloth over the table where the bread of the presence is displayed, and on the cloth they will place the bowls, ladles, jars, pitchers, and the special bread. They must spread the scarlet cloth over all of this, and finally a covering of fine goatskin leather on top of the scarlet cloth. Then they must insert the carrying poles into the table. Next, they must cover the lampstand with the blue cloth along with its lamps, lamp snuffers, trays, and and special jars of olive oil. Then they must cover the lampstand and its accessories with fine goatskin leather and place the bundle on a carrying frame. Next, they must spread a blue cloth over the gold incense altar and cover this cloth with fine goatskin leather. Then they must attach the carrying poles to the altar. They must take all the remaining furnishings of the sanctuary and wrap them in blue cloth, cover them with fine goatskin leather, and place them on the carrying frame. They must remove the ashes from the altar for sacrifices and cover the altar with a purple cloth. All the altar utensils, the fire pans, meat forks, shovels, basins, and all the containers must be placed on the cloth, and a covering of the fine of fine goatskin leather must be spread over them. Finally, they must put the carrying poles in place. The camp will be ready to move when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the sacred articles. The Korahites will come and carry these things to the next destination. But they must not touch the sacred objects or they will die. So these are the things from the tabernacle that the Korahites must carry. 
Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, will be responsible for the oil of the lampstand, the fragrance incense, the daily grain offering, and the anointing oil. In fact, Eliezer will be responsible for the entire tabernacle and everything in it, including the sanctuary and its furnishings. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Do not let the Korahite clans be destroyed from among the Levites. This is what you must do so they will live and not die when they approach the most sacred objects. Aaron and his sons must always go in with them and assign a specific duty or load to each person. The Korahites must never enter the sanctuary to look at the sacred objects for even a moment or they will die. And the Lord said to Moses, Record the names of the members of the clans and families of their Gershonite division of the tribe of Levi. List all the men between the ages of 30 and 50 who are eligible to serve in the tabernacle. Those Gershonite clans, I'm sorry, these Gershonite clans will be responsible for general service and carrying loads. They must carry the curtains of the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself with its covering, the outer covering of fine goatskin leather, and the curtain for the tabernacle entrance. They are also to carry the curtains for the courtyard walls that surround the tabernacle and altar, the curtain across the courtyard entrance, the ropes, and all the equipment related to their use. The Gershonites are responsible for all these items. Aaron and his sons will direct the Gershonites regarding all of their duties, whether it involves moving the equipment or doing other work. They must assign the Gershonites responsibility for the loads they are to carry. So these are the duties assigned to the Gershonite clans at the tabernacle. They will be directly responsible to Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. Now, record the name of the members of the clans and families of the Mirarite division of the tribe of Levi. List all the men between the ages of 30 and 50 who are eligible to serve in the tabernacle. Their only duty at the tabernacle will be to carry loads. They will carry the frames of the tabernacle, the crossbars, the posts, and the bases. Also the posts of the courtyard walls with their bases, pegs, and ropes, and all the accessories and everything else related to their use. Assign the various loads to each man by name. So these are the duties of the Mirarite clan, clans at the tabernacle. They are directly responsible to Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. So Moses and Aaron and the other leaders of the community listed the members of the Korahite division by their clans and families. They listed The list included all the men between 30 and 50 years of age who were eligible for service in the tabernacle, and the total number came to 2,750. So this was the total of all those from the Korahite clans who were eligible to serve at the tabernacle. Moses and Aaron listed them just as the Lord had commanded through Moses. The Gershonite division was also listed by its clans and families. The list included all the men between 30 and 50 years of age who were eligible for service in the tabernacle, and the total number came to 2,630. So this was the total of all those from the Gershonite clans who were eligible to serve at the tabernacle. Moses and Aaron listed them just as the Lord had commanded. The Merorite division was also listed by its clans and families. The list included all the men between 30 and 50 years of age 
who were eligible for the service in the tabernacle, and the total number came to 3,200. So this was the total of all those from the Merarite clans and who were eligible for service. Moses and Aaron listed them, just as the Lord had commanded through Moses. So Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel listed all the Levites by their clans and families. All the men between 30 and 50 years of age who were eligible for service in the tabernacle and for its transportation, number 8,580. When their names were recorded as the Lord had commanded through Moses, each man was assigned his task and told what to carry. And so the registration was completed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. We see that theme over and over. They did as the Lord commanded. They were given specific instructions to carry out. Chapter 5. The Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Command the people of Israel to remove from the camp anyone who has a skin disease or a discharge or who has become ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person. This command applies to men and women alike. Remove them so they will not defile the camp in which I live among them. Highlight that, circle that. Draw your attention to that. God is living among them. Israel's camp is to remain pure. God's presence cannot be defiled. Think about that. In your life, in our life, God's presence is with us. He's in us. And we ought not to be yoking ourselves to, to, to things, to people, uh, to sin, in our lives that defile his presence. He's holy where he's to be honored. He's living among them. Verse 4, So the Israelites did as the Lord had commanded Moses and removed such people from the camp. Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If any of the people, men or women, betray the Lord by doing wrong to another person, they are guilty. They must confess their sin and make full restitution for what they have done, adding an additional 20% and returning it to the person who was wrong. But if the person who was wronged is dead and there is no near relatives to whom restitution can be made, the payment belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priests. Those who are guilty must bring a ram as a sacrifice and they will be purified and made right with the Lord. All the sacred offerings that Israelites bring to the priests will belong to him. Each priest may keep all the sacred donations that he receives. Restitution. God is a God that reconciles. He's from, see, God doesn't change from the beginning to now and forever. He is the same. Holdness, healing, salvation. It's all God, you all. He's called his people to be different, to live different. And that time, and this time, and in the times to come. I mean, we must know the Word of God. 
It's the word of God is active and living. It gives us the wisdom and the understanding and the discernment that is needed in order to live out the truth and who he is. Remember, when we are born again, we receive salvation. We're born again now of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. God himself is in us. He's no longer contained to a temple. We are his temple. We are to walk habitually in the Spirit so that we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. We're to be a people set apart for his use. And so it's so crazy when you have this understanding and then you see these teachings, these demonic teachings that are infiltrating the church. We're not to fall prey to them. We're not to give thought to them. We're not just to go along with them because that's what the culture is doing. No, we recognize the times that we are living and we're to remain in Christ abide in Christ and not go along with the culture. We must stand in, 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 the, in the understanding of, of and truth of who Christ is and who our God is from the beginning. I mean, we're reading how God instructed his people. If it was important then, it's important now and it will be important to the days to come that we understand who our God is. And what he's calling us to. Verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instruction to the people of Israel. Suppose a man's wife goes astray, and she is unfaithful to her husband, and has sex with another man, but neither her husband nor anyone else knows about it. She has defiled herself, even though there was no witness, and she was not caught in the act. If her husband becomes jealous and is suspicious of his wife and needs to know whether or not she has defiled herself, the husband must bring his wife to the priest. He must also bring an offering of two quarts of barley flour to be presented on her behalf. Do not mix it with olive oil or frankincense, for it is a jealous offering, an offering to prove whether she or not she is guilty. The priest will then present her to stand trial before the Lord. He must take some holy water in a clay jar and pour into it dust he has taken from the tabernacle floor. When the priest has presented the woman before the Lord, he must unbind her hair and place her hands, I'm sorry, and place in her hands the offering of proof, the jealous offering, to determine whether her husband's suspicions are justified. The priest will stand before her holding the jar of bitter water that brings a curse to those who are guilty. The priest will then put the woman under oath and say to her, if no other man has had sex with you, you have not gone astray, and you have not gone astray and defiled yourself while under your husband's authority. May you be immune from the effects of this bitter water that, that brings on a, the curse. But if you have gone astray, 
by being unfaithful to your husband and have defiled yourself by having sex with another man. At this point, the priest must put the woman under oath by saying, may the people know that the Lord's curse is upon you when he makes you infertile, causing your womb to shrivel and your abdominum to swell. Now may the water that brings the curse into your body and cause your abdominum to swell and your womb to shrivel. And the woman will be required to say, yes, let it be so. And the priest will write these curse, well, I'm sorry, will write these curses on a piece of leather and wash them off into the bitter water. He will make the woman drink the bitter water that brings on the curse. When the woman enters, I'm sorry, when the water enters her body, it will cause bitter suffering if she is guilty. The priest will take the jealousy offering from the woman's hand, lift it up before the Lord, and carry it to the altar. He will take a handful of flour as a token portion and burn it on the altar, and he will require the woman to drink the water. If she has defiled herself by being unfaithful to her husband, the water that brings on the curse will cause bitter suffering. Her abdominum will swell and her womb will shrink and her name will become a curse among her people. But she has, but if she has not defiled herself and is pure, then she will be unharmed and will still be able to have children. This is the ritual law for dealing with suspicion. If a woman goes astray and defiles herself while under her husband's authority, or if a man becomes jealous and is suspicious that his wife has been unfaithful, the husband must present his wife before the Lord, and the priest will apply this entire ritual law to her. The husband will be innocent of any guilt in this matter, but his wife will be held accountable for her sin. Wow. God's presence. God is holy. And God is setting up a system, a lifestyle of, of, of holiness for his people. Other nations are running amok sexually. Perversion is at that time as it is in this time and as, as the times to come will run amok. But God's people are to remain pure. And God was dealing with this issue. That the marriage was to remain pure. And if there was an incident, do you realize she was brought to trial before who? The Lord. As all of us are. Ultimately, that is whom, he is whom we answer to. For the sin that we're committing. That's why we must be a repentive people. We must allow the Holy Spirit's conviction to lead us into repentance. And not keep hidden sin hidden in our hearts. I mean, this woman could have done the act and no one would know. But if her husband became aroused with suspicion, he would bring her to the priest. And put her on trial before the Lord. And back in those days, to have a barren womb, you were shunned. I mean, that was the ultimate rejection, if you would. So for a woman to have to face that, I'm sure was 
excruciating. Especially if she wasn't, well, either way, if she was guilty or not. God doesn't play with sin. He, he doesn't take it lightly. And nor should we. We should definitely be humble before our God daily and throughout the day. And as we feel the conviction that we repent, that we honor God with our words and our deeds, that we've taken thoughts captive, that we're allowing him to have full access and full reign, not my will, but your will be done. God, have your way. Go to Mark chapter 12. reading Mark chapter 12, verse 18 through 37. <clears throat> Again, Jesus is being approached by the religious men of the day. Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question, Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife without children, his brothers should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died without children. Then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them, and still there were no children. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven married were married to her. And please don't miss out on Jesus' reply. Verse 24. And Jesus replied, Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of of God. He was talking to religious men who basically studied scripture, what they had at that time. They were known for their knowledge of God. And yet, Jesus is exposing them that they had none. Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be, I'm sorry, in this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now, as, the, as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this? In the writings of Moses and the story of the burning bush, long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. You have made a serious error. He goes on. One of the teachers of the religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered them well. 
So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of, of religious law replied, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Verse 35, later on, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, he said, Why do the teachers of the religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David himself called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? And the crowd listened to him with great delight. These are Jesus' words, you all. He's speaking truth. He's shattering the religious strongholds of the day. He's not caving in to them. He's not giving in to the way they want it to be. No, he is who he is. He is God. And he is upholding truth so that the blind will see and the deaf will hear. That hope would be given. That men and women would be drawn unto him. That freedom would come to the captives. This is Jesus, you all. This is whom we serve if we're in Christ, if we've been born again, this is who our master is. We've humbled ourselves and we've said, yes, Lord. And as I prayed earlier, oh, that our prayer would be, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Go to Psalm chapter, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, not chapter, Psalm 48, verses 1 through 14. Psalm 48. How great is the Lord, how deserving of praise, and the city of our God, which sits on his holy mountain. It is high and magnificent. The whole earth rejoices to see it. Mount Zion, the holy mountain, is the city of the great king. God himself is in Jerusalem's towers, revealing himself as its defender. The kings of the earth joined forces and advanced against the city. But when they saw it, they were stunned. 
they were terrified and ran away. They were gripped with terror and wrath and pain like a woman in labor. You destroyed them, well, I'm sorry, yeah, you destroyed them like the mighty ships of Tarshish, shattered by a powerful east wind. We have heard of the city's glory, but now we have seen it ourselves. The city of the Lord of heaven's armies. It is the city of our God. He will make it safe forever. O oh God, we meditate on your unfailing love as we worship in your temple. As your name deserves, O oh God, you will be praised to the ends of the earth. Your strong right hand is filled with victory. Let the people of Mount Zion rejoice. Let all the towns of Judah be glad because of your justice. Go inspect the city of Jerusalem. Walk around and count the many towers. Take note of the fortified walls and tour our, all the citadels that you may describe them to future generations. For that is what God is like. He is our God forever and ever, and he will guide us until we die. Oh, the hope that we have in our God, you all. Do you know him? Is your hope in him? Remember, I keep encouraging us as you're reading through the book of Psalms that the book of Psalms calls us to look up. Not to look out at our circumstances, not to get defeated by what's coming against us, but to look up and to see our God. Did you see the contrast in this psalm? The people of God, they rejoiced in his presence, in, in, in seeing his display, his splendor, his power. But the wicked, those that were rising up against them, they were stunned, they were terrified, they ran away. We don't belong with the wicked. Yes, we see him as holy, and yes, we've been given the, the right to come boldly into his presence. We don't take it for granted to where we discredit him and we dishonor him. No, we understand what we've been given. The right, not because of anything we have done, but all because of what he has accomplished. Oh, what a great God we serve. Go to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 26. Proverbs 10, verse 26. We end with a little nugget of wisdom. Lazy people irritate their employers like vinegar to the teeth or smoke in the eyes. And I've always encouraged us, and I've always have and will continue to encourage us that we should be the best at what we do. Our employers those that were serving, however it is, we should be doing it to the best of our abilities. We should not be lazy. Rather, it's our employees, our employers are serving one another. We are not just to do it half-heartedly. We're to give it, a, we're to give it a, all of us. 
We should be the best at what we do and in our service. Because we're Christians. We're Christians. We're not to be lazy. We're to honor God and how we live and how we serve. And this is a great proverb. Lazy people irritate their employers like vinegar to the teeth or smoke in the eyes. No, we should be a people that are diligent, that are hard workers, that give of all of themselves and whatever they have called, whatever they're called to do. Oh, let it be said that we honor God in our work. Amen? Amen. Now let me close us with this last song of worship and then I'll close us in prayer. Fill me with
through.